welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. So we've been in a series called 23, and it's just been really great to look at the 23rd Psalm, a a psalm that's super familiar to a, a a greater majority of us in the room this morning, and take a fresh look, a contemplative look at like what the Lord might be speaking to us today, what God might be speaking to us today. And it's going to be amazing here coming up. We're like halftime, if you want to put it in a Super Bowl context, we are like at halftime this morning. This is like the halfway point in the series and in the psalm. And then we'll go into a season of Lent and heading towards Easter. But this morning is like halftime. Next week, Jason Torrance is going to be speaking. You're not going to want to miss that. And then a couple weeks later, Ben Barnhart's going to be speaking. So just some really wonderful stuff that's being shared and that we're discussing here in looking at the 23rd Psalm. And today, uh, the hope is that we don't miss the forest for the trees. Because this verse is so significant, we've been chopping it up and kind of dissecting verse by verse. And so this morning, we want to kind of zoom out for a second and take a macro look at the psalm in its totality, um, because I think that there's something really significant in marking the halfway point of the psalm. And we'll see what that is here in just a minute. And then after that, we'll zoom back in. We'll go right back in and look at, look at the trees, uh, per se, of the valley. And we'll take a look at the valley. You say, oh, great. I can't wait for that. <laughs> and then we'll then end with the withness of Jesus um, and how God is Emmanuel, God with us in, in the valley. And so why is it important that we zoom out and we take a macro look at the psalm in its totality? And the main reason why we're going to do that and the main reason why it's significant is because there's this shift that happens in our verse this morning that is super significant. And it's the shift from he to you. So up until this point in this psalm, David is saying, he is this, he does this, he cares for me. It's like the Lord is my shepherd. He leads me to green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me beside quiet waters. And now from here forth, he says that you are with me. That you anoint my head with oil that you prepare a table before me. And it's this slight little grammatical shift that means so, so very much. It's a change, it marks a change in relationship between the speaker and the shepherd figure. And I felt like, I sensed that the Lord was drawing my attention to John 10. We've been referencing that as well. Um, And when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, And when Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, the shift from he to you, I want us to pay attention to who Jesus is speaking to. In John 10, Jesus says this. He says, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, he's speaking to the religious leaders. Keep that in mind as he's calling himself the good shepherd. And later he says that he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. This shift, this grammatical shift between he and now moving into you, you are my shepherd, is really important. 
He's saying to the religious leaders, the people who are teaching the people, who are the Pharisees, the governing structure of the temple, he's saying, listen, this is so radical, what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you know about God, but you don't know God. And that's why this shift from he to you is so important in the psalm that we're studying, that we're looking at. And more than a grammatical shift, the Pharisees may have even told folks that they know God. Oh yeah, we know God. But Jesus sees through that, all that stuff, right to their hearts. And he says, you may even be telling people that you know God, but you don't. You know about him. You don't know him. And he sees their hearts. And from that perspective, Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. They're known by name. And it's these that Jesus lays his life down for. Knowing God versus knowing about God. The difference is personal relationship. The difference is personal relationship. And the only way to know God, what he's telling the Pharisees, the only way to know God is through Jesus. That's why he calls himself later in John 10, the gate, the door. Jesus says of himself, he's the way. And then in John 14, he says, no one comes to the Father. You cannot know God without first going through Jesus. No one comes to the Father but through him. And the truth is, is that in a lot of ways, we're a lot like the Pharisees. If we were honest with one another this morning. We don't really want to know him. We want to settle for knowing about him. The reason we don't want to actually know him and be in relationship with him is it because it reveals that we are not him and we want to be God. iPhone, selfie, selfie, I, God, on the throne. We want to be God. But the reason that we settle for knowing about him rather than knowing him is because when we choose to really know him, what it exposes in our hearts is that we want to be him. Yeah, he's holy and we're flawed. (laughs) And we don't want to look at ourselves like that. So we tell ourselves we know about him and that's fine. And we tell others that we're Christians, but there's really no difference in our lives. You see, the Pharisees he was speaking to, the, the Pharisees he told this to, they began to pick up stones. Later in the passage, they picked up stones to kill him. They couldn't hear the truth that they must know God, that knowing about God wasn't good enough. And that really got at them. Because if you know anything about the narrative of the Pharisees, they thrived on being good enough. They could be good enough. And knowing about God in their eyes was good enough. And Jesus was saying, not good enough. In fact, the worst. How dare you know about God but not know him, not truly know him? And so they picked up stones to try and kill him because they couldn't hear the truth that they must know God. Their best works weren't good enough. 
So they wanted to kill him. And we're a lot like them. We settle for knowing about him rather than really knowing him in so many areas in our lives. But friends, how freeing it is, how freeing it is to everybody when we finally admit that we're flawed, that we are not him. We're severely flawed. And through Jesus the viewfinder, God sees us and loves us the same. Then, once we're broken, then we're able to know God. See, the, the key to personal relationship with Jesus is surrender. It's surrender. And yeah, I hear you. It's not legalism. It's not like um, you got to give up all these things in order to get grace. No, grace is free to you. Grace costs Jesus everything. Grace is free to you. But could we agree that the key to personal relationship is surrender? Like if you decide to follow Jesus, you're going to need to give up a few things. In fact, you're going to need to give up everything. It's going to cost you everything to follow Jesus. If we would only get off of the throne and let him be him, then we'll really know God and not just know about him. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could survey anybody. American society is crazy. You could, you could survey anybody and say, hey, are you a Christian, or do you, do you know God? And you'd probably find 80, 85% of the people out there saying like, yeah, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. I know, I know God. But really what they're saying when they say, I know God, is they're saying, I know about him. I know that I, know that I live in America, and, you know, we have mega churches, and I go to church there, and God, know about God, don't know God. The drastic difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And this verse is the turning point in the psalm, and it's got a lot to do with what St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul. Are you guys familiar with that? The dark night of the soul, this valley of the shadow of death that David talks about, that God meets us in the valley. And the macro look at the psalm, this being the hinge that the, that the door swings on or the whole chapter rests in, the halftime of the Super Bowl, this, this verse is important. The macro look, if we were to take a contemplative look at this chapter, we would say that what David is laying out here before us is really a path to follow of what following God looks like. If you picture it this way, he opens the psalm and he says that the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside quiet waters. He leads me to green pastures. It's sort of like this picture of like two sheep that are talking at the fence. And the one sheep is like, who, you know, who is this? Who is that shepherd? And David, the other sheep, is saying, well, that's the Lord. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord, see what he does? Look who he is. Look where he leads me. All of those things. 
And we could look at that as kind of like step one. We're like, we're like just coming into like following God. Who is that shepherd up there? Kind of like an immature look at like the Lord being our shepherd, right? It's kind of holding God at like a distance, not in a positive or negative way, but just kind of God as like this object. The Lord, yeah, he cares for me, feeds me, takes care of me. The Lord is my shepherd, telling somebody else, right? But then in our journey, oftentimes what happens for a lot of us, if you have a heartbeat in the room this morning, is that God will bring us into the season where there's like this disruption, this destabilizing force. It's not like he creates this thing in our lives. It's just the nature of being human and living on the earth, right? His promises for us are always good. His purposes for us are always good. But this thing happens. It's like the loss of a loved one or it's like a terminal illness in our life and it's destabilizing. It's difficult. It's hardship. It's troubling. And it's unique to each person. And it causes us to reevaluate and say, wait a second. I'm having doubts about this whole thing. And that's okay. And we long for Vineyard Cleveland to be a place where you can doubt. And I doubt that you'll hear that from a lot of pulpits this morning. But we want to create a safe place. It's okay to wrestle with those things. And it actually, it actually sets you up to a deeper relationship with Jesus. Because it's here in the valley, in our lives, the hinge point in the chapter, where God brings us into intimacy with himself. That's where the good stuff happens. I don't know if you're aware of this, but pain and adversity is actually a backdoor to Jesus' presence. That it's in the valley where God does his best work. It's in the brokenness where God changes our life. And then as the psalm moves through, it's like this maturation process. The Lord is my shepherd. He's kind of like distant. He's like this object that I know some, something about. He takes care of me. And then there's the dark night of the soul. There's like the struggle. And even in doubt, you are with me, right? This language of intimacy. And then David moves into the language of dwelling at the end. And notice you prepare a table. Listen, listen to all of the, the home and house references. You prepare a table before me. I will dwell in the house of the Lord. It's like moving from like this being the sheep and this follower and kind of like this animalistic sense of like following God into like full bloom humanity. I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You anoint my head with oil. When David's not anointing sheep's head with oil, the shepherd doesn't anoint sheep's head with oil, speaking about himself as a person. And so I wanted to zoom out for a second for us to see that about the psalm, that it's like this journey that David's taking us on as we follow God. As we follow him, it's like this path from distance to intimacy to dwelling. Distance, intimacy, dwelling. So, to zoom back in to the valley, here we go. Oh boy, anybody going through a valley this morning? Ah, uh, you're all liars. 
<laughs> Anyone going through the valley this morning? I wanted to talk about how suffering relates to divine union. Philip Keller, in his book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, which we've been moving through, says this. He says, as with sheep management, so with God's people, one only gains higher ground by climbing up through the valley. Isn't that beautiful? Another um, mystic and thinker, Anthony DeMello, says this, but to come to the land of love, you must pass through the pains of death. And I love this. Check this out by Richard Rohr. This is the goods right here. If you don't get anything else, get this. Pain teaches a most counterintuitive things thing. We must go down before we even know what up is. Suffering is the most effective way whereby humans learn to trust, allow, and give up control to another source. I wish there were a different answer, but Jesus reveals on the cross both the, pay, the path and the price of full transformation into the divine. Ibid is pain. Pain is the only way that we grow. I, I used to believe, I used to believe, take a deep breath. <laughs> I think five, seven years ago, I might have believed like, you know, there's probably other ways that this can happen in my life. That the vision of Christ in my life, that the person of Christ inside of me, that there, yeah, God, you can do that through blessing. Bring it on. God, you can do that through happy times, sure. Through celebration, sure. I am now thoroughly more convinced than ever that the only way, the only way that we grow as humans is through pain. And it sucks that it's like that. But it's beautiful. It's beautiful that it's like that. That God has set it up to be that way. That even in the pain, even in the suffering, that Jesus meets us there to transform our lives. Pain teaches a most counterintuitive thing. We must go down before we even know what up is. It's in the valley that Jesus teaches us how to be conduits of his grace for other people. There's an empathy that Jesus brings out of our souls that's always been there, but that he can only dust for and expose through the process of pain. Philip Keller says again this in, in his book. You want to care for others? Leaders, here it is. The simple fact is that just as water can only flow in a ditch or a channel or a valley, so with the Christian, the life of God can only flow in blessing through the valleys that have been carved and cut into our own lives by excruciating experiences. Some of you have been through excruciating experiences in your life, whether it was in your childhood or in your adult years. You have been through things that you would not imagine or wish or project on any other human creature on the planet. I'm telling you that the sheer truth that you have gone through these things and are sitting here this morning gives you vast capability to love the person sitting in the chair next to you. 
that your capability for loving others because of the pain that you've experienced in your life is multiplied exponentially as opposed to someone who has not gone through pain yet. Because we'll all go through the fire. (coughs) Excuse me. We'll all go through the fire. Jesus says, Jesus says it. In this world, you will have trouble. It's not if you go through the valley, it's when you go through the valley. And when we're in the valley, it's important to know that we're just passing through the valley, that we're not staying there. David says that even though I walk through the valley, time is irrelevant to the whole thing, but you need to know that you're walking through the valley, that you're not staying in the valley. Whether the Hebrew interpretation is, yeah, you're just passing through, or whether it means that you're not going to fear any evil regardless of how long you're in the valley or not in the valley, amidst the chaos that you will fear no evil, you need to know that you're just moving through the valley. You're not in the valley forever and ever. Amen. And the reason David says that fear is not there with us is because Jesus is. Anywhere Jesus is, fear can't stay. Fear has to go when Jesus shows up. We don't have to be afraid this morning. Hey, you don't have to be afraid this morning. That's the good news. Yeah, easy for you to say. I hear you. You don't have to be afraid this morning. Coronavirus everywhere, instability in the government. You don't have to be afraid this morning. You don't have to be afraid this morning. I mean, if I just stood up here for like 20 minutes and just said that, I think it'd be well worth the price of admission. You don't have to be afraid this morning. Ah, can we put our hands on our hearts and just say it together? Uh, Yeah, let's do it. I don't have to be afraid this morning. Ready? You guys speak it out. I don't have to be afraid this morning. I don't have to be, we don't have to, what's the fear? What's the fear this morning? What can man do to you if the Lord is your shepherd? If the Lord is with you, even in the valley, what can anyone do to you? Bring your worst. Do your worst. Am I inviting calamity on my house? No, because no evil will come near my tent. The Lord is my shepherd. He not only restores my soul, he prepares a table before me. That's the good news of the kingdom, is that you don't have to be afraid this morning, and neither do I. You don't have to be afraid this morning. Why? Why don't you have to fear? Well, let me tell you why you don't have to be afraid. Here are 13 reasons you don't have to be afraid. The myriad of reasons. Here are 13. You don't have to be afraid because you will not die apart from God's gracious decree for your children. James, Matthew, Deuteronomy. You don't have to be afraid because curses and divinations do not hold sway against God's people. Numbers. You don't have to be afraid because the plans of terrorists and hostile nations do not succeed apart from our gracious God. Psalm and Isaiah. You don't have to be afraid because man cannot harm you beyond God's gracious will for you you. Psalm 118.6. God promises to protect his own from all that is not finally good for you. 
You don't have to be afraid because God promises to give you all that you need to obey and enjoy and honor him forever and ever. Amen. You don't have to be afraid because God is never taken off guard. There's never a point in your life that God is like, oh, what is that? I can't believe that happened. God knows everything and is never taken off guard. You don't have to be afraid because God will be with you, helping you and upholding you in times of trouble. Isaiah 40. You don't have to be afraid because terrors will come. Some of us will die, but not a hair on your head. This is encouraging for me. Will perish. Amen. You don't have to be afraid because nothing befalls God's own but in its appointed hour, John 7. You don't have to be afraid because when God Almighty is your helper, no one can harm you beyond what he decrees, Hebrews, Romans. You don't have to be afraid because God's faithfulness is based on the firm value of his name, not yours, or the fickle measure of your obedience. You don't have to be afraid because the Lord, our protector, is great and awesome, Nehemiah 4.14. And finally, number 14, I'll throw this one in for free. You don't have to be afraid because fear is a liar. Amen. Amen. Fear is a liar. Fear will lie to you about who you are. Fear will lie to you about your destiny. Fear will lie to you about your future. Fear will lie to you about your kids. Fear will lie to you about your spouse, how it will turn out, what it will look like, what it will not look like. Fear is a liar, in the words of our friend songwriter Zach. Fear is a liar. But Jesus will always tell you the truth. And the place he speaks the truth the best is the valley that you're going through. It's where he does his best work, which brings us finally to the witness of Jesus. Do you know it's the most common promise in the Bible? You ever notice that? That Jesus always tells people, fear not, fear not. I'll be with you, Jesus says. The most common promise of the Bible is not that I will forgive you, even though that's good, and it's in there. The most common promise of the Bible is not that, like, you'll have life after death, though you will. The most common promise of the Bible is, I will be with you. And no other God can say that. You guys ever think about that? No one other than Jesus can say that. There's no other world religion that's saying that right now. Or ever. That's unique to Yahweh. That's unique to Jesus. This promise of witness to us. That's the joy of the follower of Jesus that, yes, you're with me even in the middle of it. It's the most powerful sentiment we can grasp when we're in the valleys of life. John 16, 33, I've told you these things, Jesus says, so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Check this out. This is Dallas Willard. We'll end here. He says, it seems like Jesus was constantly saying to his friends, fear not, fear not. Imagine what that would be like. No fear of life, aging, or death, 
disease or hunger, no fear of any person or creature, not even the loss of all your possessions. You can live without fear, even in the midst of a world dominated by fear. The truth is that the complete sufficiency, uh, you guys, The truth is that the complete sufficiency of the life without lack is based, he says, foundational. The life without any lack is based upon the presence of God. And he is most clearly and fully present to us in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. You know, John Bunyan wrote this glorious book that's a treasure. It's a Christian classic called The Pilgrim's Progress. You guys familiar with it? And the character in the book, Christian, as he emerges from not one valley, but two, if you remember the book, he's emerging from this valley. He sings this song. And I felt like it was important to sing as it were, Christian's song over us this morning. As we stand together, I'll just read this over us as we close today. You guys check this out. As he's emerging from the valley, the character Christian sings this, a world of wonders, I can say no less that I should be preserved in that distress that I have met with here. Oh, blessed be that hand that from it hath delivered me. Dangers and darkness, devils, hell and sin did encompass me while, while I, this veil was in, Yes, snares and pits and traps and nets did lie my path about. That worthless silly, I might have been caught and tangled and cast down. But since I live, let Jesus wear the crown.